You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible with you, you will make your way to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, forgot one, we do have some in the back. You can pull it up on your phone. We use the ESV translation. Gospel of Luke chapter 9. This morning our text is verses 37 through 50. If you're a guest with us this morning, once again, we're so glad that you're here with us today. One of the things we do as a church is, is we preach through books of the Bible, and we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. Our series has been entitled From the Manger to the Throne. Today, we're just picking up where we left off. And last week, uh, we ended in verse 36, and today we're picking up in verse 37 through 50. So I'm going to begin reading, and let me just remind us, church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. On the next day, when they'd come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, The demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him beside him. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, and and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. May God bless the preaching of his word. 
Well, churches, we reflect on the events that took place right after the transfiguration on the mountain, if you remember that from last week. Right after these events took place, we come to what is recorded here in Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. And I thought it would serve us to consider the following observation from pastor and author Dave Harvey when he writes, I quote, like death, taxes, and really bad haircuts, failure finds us all. I love that. Like death, taxes, and really bad haircuts, failure finds us all. What we discover in the text today is that the, the first disciples, they weren't exempt from failure, and they weren't exempt from mistakes. And we too, as we seek to follow Christ, we too will make mistakes. We too will fail. But I want to encourage us this morning, when we fail, that we fail forward. That we fail forward by learning from our mistakes and by continuing to look to Christ. The title of my message this morning is Failing Forward. And what I want to do is I want to point out a few of the ways in which the disciples and the crowd, according to our text, as, they came, as Jesus came down the mountain, how they failed. But instead of stating it in a negative way, I want to turn these mistakes into lessons for us to learn. Things that we can seek to do differently. And there's four of them I want to point out from our text this morning. Here's the first one. We must keep the faith. Verses 37 through 42, that's what we take away from this section. We're to keep the faith. Luke informs us that right after Jesus came down from the mountain, this is last week's passage, he comes down the mountain with Peter, James, and John. He was immediately met by a crowd of people waiting to meet him. This is not unusual so far in Luke's gospel. The, the crowds are always there. No matter where he goes, as soon as they find him, they rush to him. And among the crowd, Luke informs us that there was a desperate father who had one son, and his son was being tormented, tormented by this evil spirit. Look at, look at verse 39 again. Listen to how the father speaks about what's going on. He said, Behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. This is a dire situation, and this is a desperate dad. And to make matters worse, not only is there this father who has his one son whom you can just tell he loves in this predicament. But these, this father went to the disciples and they were unable to do anything about it. They were unable to cast out this spirit. Now, we, we must not forget, at this point, Jesus has commissioned his disciples to be able to do this. Listen to chapter 9, verse 1. Remember what's already taken place? He called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. 
so what's going on here? It's not that they don't have the power or the authority. What, what hindered the disciples from, from doing this? How, how were they unable to minister to this father and his son? Well, we don't have to guess because if we listen carefully to the words of Jesus and this lament that really comes out of his mouth as he hears about this situation, we discover all that's going on. Look again at verse 41. Jesus says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Did you get what Jesus just said? Did you hear upon this father's request and, and, and just plea for help? It says he begged him. Do you hear what Jesus says? O faithless and twisted generation. Philip Ryken, in his excellent commentary on Luke, I think he states the problem well when he writes, the disciples did not fail for lack of effort, but due to their lack of faith. It's not because they lost their powers or because they used the wrong method. It was because of their unbelief. See, that's why Jesus voices this lament in verse 41. We're not to hear this as Jesus is angry or exasperated. I think there, there is a sense of lament. We, we don't get to hear the tone here, but I think the tone is one of just almost Jesus with his hands in his head. Oh, <laughs> oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long, how, how long is this to continue on? See, for whatever reason, the disciples and, and, and the, the crowd, they lacked the faith necessary to minister to this boy and his father. But, but get this, the failures of the disciples did not hinder Jesus. Look, look, look at the end of verse 41. We, we see that the failures of the disciples, they don't hinder Jesus. What seemed impossible to the disciples was not impossible to Christ. I'm going to read the end of verse 41 through verse 42. Jesus says, bring your son here. And we're told while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground. The word there in the original is, is a word used in wrestling terms. He, he would body slammed. He's thrown to the ground violently and he convulsed. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and he healed the boy. This is my favorite part. And he gave him back to his father. See, once again, as we've seen several times throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus demonstrates his authority over the demonic world. And once again, we see Jesus restore our relationship by returning a child to their parent. If you recall back in chapter 7, verse 15, the, there was the mother who lost her only son. He, he was dead, and Jesus shows up as they're bringing his casket out. Jesus brings him back from the dead, and it says he returns him to his mother. Now, what do we do with this passage? What lesson can we learn here? Well, I think it's this. If we're going to be effective in ministering to others, we must exercise faith in Christ by believing He can do the impossible. 
If we're going to minister to others, we must exercise faith by believing that Christ can do the impossible. So far in our study of Luke, we, we have seen time and time again how essential faith is when following Jesus. What, what makes us a disciple of Jesus is not our background, it's not our knowledge, it's that we are aware of our need and we put our faith in Jesus. We've seen time and time again how important faith is. Jesus has commended people for their faith, whether they are Jew or Gentile, whether they grew up in the church or they didn't. No one is left out. If you have faith, that makes you a disciple of Jesus. If you have faith in Jesus, that makes you a disciple of Jesus. We've seen this time and time again. And yet, how often do we neglect this most essential component and following Christ every day and every week. You see, instead of exercising faith, we can entertain thoughts like this each and every day. See if you've had some thoughts like this. If only I had this certain spiritual gift. If only I had more knowledge. If only I had more resources. If only I had more abilities, I would be able to do more for Christ and His kingdom. You ever entertained that thought? Or maybe you've had that thought about your family. If only my family looked different. Maybe if we had daily devotions or we weren't so dysfunctional or had more resources or had more time to give to people. Then then Christ would use us. Or we can entertain those thoughts about our church. If only we had more people. If only we were bigger. Maybe if we were located in a different place. Maybe if we just had this ministry, then God would use us. Friends, not only is that kind of thinking unhelpful, it hinders us just like it did the disciples in this passage from doing ministry. That kind of thinking is unhelpful and it prevents us from doing ministry. Listen, faith in Christ is the one thing necessary to belong to Christ and faith is the one thing necessary to be used by Christ. I think as a church... As, as Protestants, we, we herald rightly so justification by faith alone. That the only way we can have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is by our faith in Jesus, His perfect righteousness, His death in our place. That makes us right with God. We get that the only way we can belong to Christ is through faith. But are we tempted to believe the only way we can minister is by some other means? We're not only saved by faith, we, we can only be used because of our faith. In my favorite book on pastoral ministry, written in 1830 by a man named Charles Bridges, he wrote the following, and I have to regularly go back to this, because this, this point in particular really, it read my mail this week. I have regularly, in the last few weeks, struggled with many of those thoughts. If only, if only, 
If only about myself, about my family, about our church, about others. If only, if only. And I have not exercised faith. And I love this quote because it is, it grounds me again and again. Listen to what Charles Bridges said many, many years ago, but it's so relevant today. He said, it is faith that enlivens our work with perpetual cheerfulness. It's faith that enlivens our work with perpetual cheerfulness. Are you lacking cheerfulness in what you're doing? Maybe you should see that you lack faith. Because when we have faith, there's a cheerfulness. There's a, there's a gladness to our work. He goes on to say, Faith commits every part of our work to God in hopes that even mistakes shall be overruled for His glory and thus relieves us from this oppressive anxiety often attended upon a deep sense of our responsibility. Then he says, The shortest way to peace will be found in casting ourselves upon God for daily pardon of deficiencies of sin and supplies of grace without looking too eagerly for present fruit. Do you hear what he's saying? Here's what I should just do every day. Here's what I should do all throughout the day. Lord, I'm just going to be faithful, and I'm, I'm asking you already right now, forgive me for all the ways I'm going to fail, because even when I think my motives are perfect in a center, they're never perfect, but I'm going to go forward Forgive me for what I do wrong. Help me in all the ways that I'm deficient. And I'm not going to measure my faithfulness by how much fruit I see. And when we live that way, there is a perpetual cheerfulness. Now, how does this truth and this quote in particular apply to us? I want to give a very specific application to us as a church. As a church member, the greatest gift you can give to any member of this church is the gift of faith. It's the gift of faith. And if you lack faith for you, if you lack faith for your family, or if you lack faith for this church, let, let me encourage you to do this. Sometimes we make the Christian life so simple. It's really this simple. Repent. If you've entertained those thoughts, if only, if only. I can't, I can't serve in my church because I don't have these abilities. If only, then, then I would do this. If only our church had this. If you've had those thoughts, that's sin. And you need to repent of it. And you need to ask God, God, give me faith. Give me faith to see you do what I could never do on my own. So let's, let's take that point of application and let's be honest about our failures and let's ask God for forgiveness knowing that he who asks for forgiveness will receive it in Christ Jesus. That's the first point. Here's the second one. Stay focused. Stay focused, verses 43 through 45. Look what happens next. We're told in verse 43... Right after Jesus did this, all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. 
But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Think about what just happened here. While everyone was making much of the majesty of God and everyone was marveling at at this miracle Jesus just performed. Think about what Jesus just did. Everybody's going crazy. Everybody's saying, did you just see that? Oh my goodness, did you just see what he did? And it's as if Jesus says, hey guys, huddle. That's not the greatest display of my glory. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to die on a cross. Don't forget that. Do you see what he's doing here? While everybody else thinks, man, this is the clear sign. And Jesus says, boys, don't be fooled. Don't think that that's what this is all about. See, for the second time now, Jesus speaks about his impending death. And, and yet, little did his disciples know that this death would actually be on a cross, a Roman cross. And it wouldn't be because of treason. He would die according to the will and plan of God to atone for the sins of his people. But they didn't know this. However, Jesus said what he did at this particular moment so that they would remain focused on the main purpose of his ministry. That's what's going on here. While everybody else is going, man, that is amazing. That's exciting. Did you see that? Jesus is saying, boy, stay focused. Stay focused. See, the main point of Jesus' ministry wasn't doing miracles. He came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. Now Luke informs us that his disciples were unable to grasp what he was saying. And they're actually, we're actually told that they, they would better understand it later. We know after his resurrection, Luke 24, it's all going to make sense. But they could have asked more questions of Jesus, but Luke tells us out of fear, they said nothing else. It's like Jesus says that, and there were crickets. And what do we learn from this particular point? What do we learn? Well, it's good for us as a church to remember that we must remain focused on our mission at hand. We have a mission. And we could be distracted, we could be drawn away to do 10,000 other really good things. Jesus could have just constantly been feeding the multitudes and healing the sick and casting out demons and doing all kinds of things, but that wasn't his main ministry. And our main ministry is not to do all of those things, it's to proclaim the good news to a world longing to hear something. It's to proclaim the good news of the gospel. So how can we stay focused? We must stay focused by being evangelistic. We must be a congregation that never allows our evangelistic efforts to become something that's just, well, it's one of many things we're about. We must be a people who share the good news. I love what 19th century... British pastor, he was called the Prince of Preachers. His name was Charles Spurgeon, and he said this, 
If there be any one point in which the Christian church ought to keep its fervor at white heat, it's their mission. If there be anything about which we cannot tolerate lukewarmness, it's the matter of sending the gospel to a dying world. Church, we must allow and ask God to keep our fervor for missions at white See, we, we, can, we, we must stay focused and not be distracted from sharing the gospel with others. So how, how can we apply this? Can, can I just encourage you as a church? There are many ways we can apply this. I want to give you one, and it's based on a passage we're coming to in a few weeks, chapter 10, where Jesus tells his disciples to do this very thing. Can I encourage you as a church to pray? To pray for yourself, and for this church, that we would remain white hot when it comes to sharing the gospel with the lost. We would remain white hot. That would not just be something we kind of do, we know we're supposed to do. It would be something we are compelled to do. But listen, we need God's help. So let's, let's pray. Can I ask you to do that? Can I ask you in your, your daily prayer time, in your devotional time, would you pray for yourself and would you pray for us as a, as a church? Lord, give us a burden and a passion to be an evangelistic people. That brings us to the third thing. What are we to do? We're to be humble. We're to be humble. Verses 46 through 48. We're told an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you all is the one who is great. Luke informs us that a conflict arose among the disciples. And the source of the conflict, we're told, was that they began to have this, this argument about who was the greatest. See, the source of their, con of their conflict was this. They were seeking greatness for themselves instead of Christ discipleship had become about them instead of him. I mean, the, the, this is one of those moments where you, 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 you kind of have to chuckle as you read the story, not because we're laughing at him, but because it's kind of painful because we can see ourselves. Like here's Jesus in all of his glory, and these guys are standing around and saying, well, who, who do you think is, is greater? I mean, especially in light of what just happened, Peter, James, and John are the only ones asked up to the mountain. You wonder if they came, came down and, well, boys, it's pretty amazing what we got to see. I mean, I know there's 12 of us, but obviously three of us must be of greater importance. What about the other disciples? Why did they get to go? We are equal of importance. We know these things. We've done these things. And so this argument breaks out, and discipleship became about them instead of him. 
And according to verses 46 and 47, Jesus was aware of this argument that had risen among his disciples and he knew the state of their hearts. Without even being told, it doesn't say he overheard, he knew. He clearly knew what was going on. They probably were keeping, they, 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 they don't have a lot, thing, a lot of things going for them, but at least they had enough decorum probably not to do this in the presence of Jesus. And yet, kind of like a child who thinks, mom and dad aren't looking. Jesus still says, guys, really? Jesus, guys, I know what's going on. I'm aware of the, the, the conflict. And therefore, Jesus then addresses the root of the problem. And you know what the root of the problem here is? Even though those, these words aren't used explicitly, I believe they're implied. Their pride. Their pride. See, in essence, the disciples were more concerned with their status than with Christ's greatness. It was just pride at work. Pride pure and simple. And if we were to be completely honest, everyone here is susceptible to pride. We're susceptible to pride. We, all the time, in various ways, pursue our own greatness by putting ourselves first instead of seeking to serve others for the glory of Christ. Now, we may think, okay, yeah, Josh, I struggle with pride in a lot of things, but, but I, I don't think I think I'm greater. But notice how the greatness gets displayed here. They were pursuing greatness by putting ourselves first. You're telling me you never put yourself first? We do all the time. And they were putting themselves first instead of serving others for the glory of Christ. In his excellent book entitled Humility, True Greatness, C.J. Mahaney, one of the founders of our family of churches, he, he just said it in the most clear, succinct, and man, just a way that cuts like a knife. This is what's going on. As sinfully and culturally defined, pursuing greatness looks like this. So that's true of us all. Ready? This is what greatness for all of us looks like. And our culture fans this flame and says, this is good. But let's call a spade a spade. Here's what this kind of understanding of greatness looks like in our cultures. Individuals motivated by self-interest, self-indulgence, and a false sense of self-sufficiency pursuing selfish ambition for the purpose of self-glorification. <laughs> Ouch. Individuals motivated by self-interest, self-indulgence, with a false sense of self-sufficiency, pursuing selfish ambition for the purpose of self-glorification. That is the problem that plagues every human heart. It's not unique to some people. It's not a problem you grow out of. It is a perpetual, continual problem. So how can we fight this kind of pride? Well, the solution Jesus gave to his disciples for their, their proud response, get, get this, surprising, he didn't say, guys, 
forsake greatness. Now, you would think that's what he would have said. Forsake greatness. No, he says, let, let me redefine greatness and let me redirect your ambition towards greatness. That's surprising, isn't it? You would think he would say, guys, okay, the problem is that you're talking about greatness. Jesus says, oh, I want you to be great. You got it all wrong, upside down, backwards. Here's what true greatness looks like. And he says this in verse 48, after bringing a child in his midst. Now, this is, this is a long time ago and in a culture very different from ours. By bringing this child in his midst, in that culture, a child was at the bottom of the totem pole. No status. No status. Jesus pulls in this kid while they're talking about who's great. And Jesus said, it's someone like this who has no importance in this culture. And then he utters these words. And this is the first time that this statement is mentioned. And it's not going to be the last time. Jesus says, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus says, guys, I want you to pursue greatness. Here's the problem. You're pursuing greatness by putting yourself first. It's the least among you all. It's the one who thinks they have nothing going. It's the one who's not seeking themselves, thinking they deserve anything. It's, it's the humble person who is the greatest. And l listen, church, if we want to guard our church from dissension, if we want to guard our church from dissension, and if we desire to see ourselves grow in godliness and to reach our community, we must all pursue humility. I love these words from John Newton, the former slave trader become pastor and the author of the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. He said this, Above all things, we should pray for humility. It may be called both the guard of all other graces and the soil in which they grow. Wow. Is that how you view hum humility? Humility is the guard of all other graces. And it's the soil in which they grow. I think this is a helpful reminder for us. And I just want to encourage you to take time to, and consider this. If, if, you're seek, if you're feeling like you are unable to grow in areas right now of godliness, can I encourage you to go back to the root source? There is pride at work in your life. Because where there is pride, all other areas of growth cannot take place. Pride is that hard soil. And when we till it, there is growth that can take place. We, we must cultivate humility. And there's many ways we can do that. John Newton suggested we pray for it. I would agree. I would encourage you to do one other thing. We, we should cultivate humility by studying the topic of pride and humility. I mentioned a minute ago a book called Humility, True Greatness by C.J. Mahaney. If you have not read that book, I know right now we don't have any on our shelf. By next week, Lord willing, we'll have some. I want to encourage you to read that book. 
Another book that has helped me greatly is a book called Humbled by David Mathis. Those two books have been significant in shaping my understanding of this topic and constantly showing me my pride and helping me say, man, I, I'm not a humble man. I need to be a humble man. Lastly, we're called to pursue unity. Verses 49 through 50. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop them because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Don't you love it that finally someone besides Peter interjects a comment? <laughs> it's John this time. Poor Peter's always opening up his mouth to say things. This time John says, hey Jesus, we thought you would want to know. Obviously, if, if, if we read it, I think in the way it's meant to be, it's almost as if John's thinking Jesus is going to say, good job guys. Oh good, you did that? Oh, whew. Okay. Hey Jesus, we just want you to know, we saw someone else doing ministry in your name, and they're not a part of our circle, and we said, ah, you better stop it. And Jesus does not give them a hand clap. Listen to what he says about this person. He says, those who are not against us are for us. You know what Jesus is implying? That this man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name is obviously not an enemy. He's obviously not an enemy. Therefore, the disciples should not treat him as one. They should be united with him. They should be appreciative of him. That's what, that should have been their posture, not opposing him. This man holds to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and has the power to do these things. See, what Jesus was reminding his disciples at that moment was this. Imagine Jesus saying, Guys, I have many enemies who oppose me and my ministry. And because you follow me, you're going to have a long list of enemies too. Let's not make others who come in my name enemies. Just because they're not in our immediate circle, listen, we've got plenty of enemies. That's not one of them. That man is not an enemy. Maybe he's not in our group, but he's not against us. See, Jesus was saying to his disciples that they needed to be united in love for the sake of mission and that they needed to be united with other fellow disciples. And friends, listen, we too must value the unity we have in Christ. We have a unity in Christ that I think we often neglect to think about and often we do things that, that harm this unity. See, may, may we as a church never let anything divide us that isn't of serious consequence. Quoting from John Newton again, he says, The children of God who therefore stand in relation to brothers and sisters, though they have too many unhappy differences in points of smaller importance, they agree in the supreme love they bear to the Heavenly Father and to Jesus their Savior. 
Upon these accounts, they love one another. They are like-minded. And they live in a world where the bulk of mankind are against them and have no regard for their beloved. Their situation, therefore, should increase their affection for each other. They are washed by the same blood, supplied by the same grace, opposed by the same enemies, and have the same heaven in view. And then he says this, In our happiest hours, when we are most affected with the love of Jesus, we feel our love fervent towards his people. We know that the love we bear them is for his sake, and we, when we consider his interest in them and our obligations to him, we are ashamed and grieved that we loved them no better. Can I ask you to take a moment and to search your heart in order to identify where there may be a spirit of disunity at work in you? Where are you currently lacking affection for other brothers and sisters in this body? Where are you holding an offense? Where are you making judgments? Where are you withdrawing? Whatever we're doing, if we're not prizing unity, guess what we need to do? Repent. Ask God for forgiveness. And ask the Lord, Lord, the unity we have in Christ, it is something I want to protect and I want to preserve. Friends, we live in a world that is so divided, we must not be divided as the people of God. We live in a world that's so divided, the last thing we need to do is be divided. As those who are united with Christ, we must promote unity and we must prize the unity we have in Christ. Now, as I I close the message, I I just want to go back to where we were a minute ago in verse 41. And I want to remind us all of the patience of the Savior. Because I think in this passage, we see the patience of the Savior. Think about Jesus' question in the form of a lament. How long am I to bear with you? And we're not to listen to that lament isolated. We're to listen to that lament in light of the entire book of Luke. How long am I to bear with you? And you know what the answer is? I will bear with you all the way to the cross where I will die for you. See, that's the good news. Despite their failures... Jesus didn't abandon these imperfect men or stop using them to build his church. And the same is true for us. Isn't that good news? That Jesus doesn't say, if you're not perfect. Jesus has a patience for all of our failures and struggles. That's why our confidence for reaching the world around us must not be based on our good fruit or we lack confidence based on our failures. See, our confidence in ministering to this world must be based on the heart of Christ, the power of Christ, the mission of Christ, and the finished work of Christ.
That was, is where our confidence ought to lie. And as I came to this final point, I was just reminded of these words from the Apostle Paul, and this is where I want to close. If you remember Luke, from what we know from the book of Acts, he traveled with the Apostle Paul. I think these words are fitting in light of what we just heard. Listen to how the Apostle Paul talks of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 12, verse 17. He says, I thank God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, if you know his story, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Then he says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ came into, into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he breaks out in doxology to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We ask now you would write it on our hearts and that you would transform us in light of what we've just heard. Your word is like a seed that is sown and we know that as it goes out, it does its work. This morning, Lord, we pray that now you would send the rain to water the ground and the seed of what we've heard so that, Lord, we would bear much fruit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.